From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm John Wells. This morning, we speak with author and professor Matthew Cobb, who discusses the morally complex field of genetic engineering. It's all in his new book, As Gods, The Moral History of Genetic Engineering. And then Dr. Holly Dubois, chief medical officer of MindStrong, a virtual behavioral health organization that provides licensed therapists and psychiatrists who specialize in treating hard to reach patients with difficult to treat conditions. These guests, when we return, you're listening to Cool Science Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm John Wells. I'm here with Lynn Ware Peak. Genetic engineering lies in a morally complex field. On the one hand, genetic engineering is exhilarating, and on the other hand, well, it's just plain terrifying. Geneticists have voluntarily paused their work not one, but four times, something that no other group of scientists has ever done. Joining us to discuss the history and present state of genetic engineering is Matthew Cobb. He is a professor at the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Manchester, and he's the author of six books. He joins us now to discuss his latest, As Gods, A Moral History of the Genetic Age. Matthew, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you very much, John. It's great to be here. Well, we're delighted to have you here, Matthew. And it's, you know, it's been uh, about 50 years since some really significant advances in genetic engineering took place, but those weren't necessarily positive or even moral. What happened? Well, well, I think they were they were kind of complicated, as, as all technological developments are. So what happened was that 50 years ago, uh, scientists were able to discover ways of mixing up DNA from different types of organisms. And we've been changing genes since we first arrived on the planet because we're, uh, you know, we're predators. So we've been either eating animals or plants, and that's altered the genes of the things that we're eating. But with genetic engineering came the possibility of moving DNA from one organism into a completely different kind. And the first proposed experiment, which caused a fuss even before it had been done, was the idea of manipulating DNA from a virus called SV40 and putting it into E. coli, which is a, a bacterium that lives in our gut. And the worry was that this SV40 virus, which scientists studied because they wanted to know how viruses worked in mammals, there's, there was the suggestion that it could cause cancer. So the idea was why on earth are you getting this potentially cancer-causing gene and putting it into E. coli that somebody might then ingest and end up having their stomach? So that was the fear. Uh, and this was an idea that Paul Berg, uh, a scientist in Stanford, was wanting to do, and a man called Bob Pollack in Cold Spring Harbor on the other side of the, the continent, he heard about this experiment. He picked up the phone and said to Berg, why are you wanting to do this crazy experiment? And uh, Berg didn't take very kindly. They didn't know each other. Berg didn't take very kindly to that and told him to get lost, but then thought about it, talked a lot to his colleagues uh, and decided that although the risk was very small, it wasn't worth taking partly because that isn't actually what he really wanted to do. What he was really interested in doing was doing the opposite experiment, getting some genes from E. coli, which were well understood, and using SV40 to put that DNA into a mammalian cell, into a mammalian cell, so that we could then understand how genes function in mammalian cells, about which nothing was known. So Berg thought, okay, this this was a side experiment I wasn't really interested in. I won't do that. I will do the other experiment. And he went ahead and did that. And that, uh, within eight years, won him the Nobel Prize because what it led to very very quickly was a whole series of developments that enabled anything to be done. Any DNA virtually from any organism could be inserted into another. And that got scientists very alarmed. In the summer of 1973 through to 1974, a whole series of discussions as people thought, well, wait a minute, this could all go horribly wrong. Uh, and then there was a decision made, uh, led by Berg, in fact, to uh, have a, what they called a moratorium 
And that was a word that had been used primarily to do with atmospheric nuclear testing. So they were taking a very significant term uh, and it got applied to genetics. We will stop doing these experiments until we are sure that they can be done safely. So they weren't asking whether they should be done. They were asking whether they could be done. And that finally led to a very famous meeting in 1975 uh, at a cinema in California, where in a kind of four or five days of frantic argument, uh, they ended up coming up with a series of biosafety security protocols that could be used to enable the research to carry on safely without anybody being hurt. And that turned out actually to be true. So quickly within two years, we had started to make drugs like insulin in bacteria. And really that gave rise to the whole uh, explosion of the biotech industry very, very quickly. One of the things that Lynn and I have observed over the last 11 years doing this program is that starting maybe about 100 years ago, before 100 years ago, um, everything was siloed off. There were all these different pockets of, of uh, thought and work being done, and they weren't sharing with other people around the world. And one of the interesting things, especially when we speak to astrophysicists and particle physicists, is that is that they're always publishing their work, and everybody knows what's going on, and it's the whole scientific process, and it's no longer siloed. And I think your example of 1972 certainly points to that. Everybody knew what was going on, and uh, the the parties were able to you know respond and have and have a discussion over all of this. But all that seems to have changed. It's all siloed off again because it's big business. Companies like yeah. Monsanto now purchased by Bayer, and 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 all of the things that are going on from from uh, you know from the perspective of of this whispering that's going on. We the the thing that concerns me is that we don't really know what's going on behind the scenes behind these closed doors, do we? No, we don't. But then back in 1971, we didn't either when Bob Pollack picked up his phone. I mean, he just heard about that because the student who was supposed to be doing the work um, raised the said, I'm going to do this experiment. Pollack who was teaching her went nuts and thought this is crazy. Um, and so that first research pause took place completely in private. Nobody, there was nothing published because none of the work had been done. It was just an idea. Um, but you're absolutely right. What What happened was that by 1980, uh, Genentech, which was the first of the big, really successful uh, biotech startups, uh, incidentally, it was incorporated the same week as Apple in the same part as Silicon Valley, about 20 miles apart. I mean, they they didn't know they didn't know each other, but it just shows us the the kind of mood that there was at the time. Uh, Genentech went public in 1980, and that was at the same time as Reagan had come to power in the US, Thatcher was already in government in the UK, and we had the deregulation was the, 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 the flavor of the, of the decade, you know, we'll get rid of all this regulation, we'll start to make lots of money, there'll be huge initiatives. And in a way that wasn't entirely untrue, there was a great deal of uh, more development in particular of genetic technology, uh, largely in the US because of this influx of venture capital money, with people hoping they were going to make a fortune. Most of them, of course, didn't. They lost their money or they didn't make much money. But the people who founded Genentech, Herb Boyer in particular, the researcher who came up with, with some of many of the ideas, uh, yeah, he, he played a tremendous role in changing the scientific culture. And although there are some good things have come out about from this, like insulin, everybody who takes insulin today, and there are an awful lot of people, do that using genetically modified <clears throat> microbes. And it should be really, really cheap because it's really, really easy to make. But for mysterious reasons, uh, it isn't, especially <laughs> in the US. I mean, it is in the, it is in Europe and the UK, but in the US you're paying far too much money. But that, that's a different issue. The key thing was, as you've alluded, once money became really important and this was part this was actually encouraged by the u.s government they wanted universe state-funded universities to start using the the patents that they hold held and there was actually a law passed the bay dole act which meant that this was now an obligation on higher education in the u.s to start making money and to set up companies and that whole culture began in the 80s and 
what that meant is that when people went to conferences, they couldn't necessarily talk about their work because they were doing some of their work was going to be was funded for by and they were actually working for private companies who didn't want to give away their secrets. So a lot of the free exchange of information, which science thrives on, started to be to dissipate and even people sometimes working in the same lab didn't know what each other were doing because half of the group would be working you know be contracted to do some work for a startup and they couldn't tell anybody what they were doing and so that silo effect has a kind of stifling influence on scientific culture and it can also lead to suspicion amongst the general public in particular for gen genetic engineering well what are they up to what are they doing in those labs why won't they tell us uh, I think generally it's not actually for nefarious reasons they don't tell us, but rather more basic. I don't want anybody to steal my idea and make a load of money out of it. Right. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're having a conversation with scientist and historian Matthew Cobb. His new book is called As Gods, A Moral History of the Genetic Age. And Matthew, one of the things you say is that, and I think it's a big reason that you wrote the book, is that this can't just be left up to scientists, sort of this oversight of genetic engineering, that that the public needs to know about it. And it's funny when you mention the incorporation of Apple and Genentech happening at the same time, you know, just miles apart. Think of everything that we know about what Apple has done. And it's because Apple produces consumer products. You might make the argument that so does Genentech, but they're not oh, yeah. consumer products that necessarily, you know, something tangible that we can hold. And so you're trying to increase awareness among the, the public in this incredible book you've written but, you know, other than that, what kind of oversight is there? I mean, you know, we talked about siloing. Is there some sort of oversight by ethicists? And, you know, I mean, right now it's just hopeful morality, right? Um, what would you say yeah, yeah. about that? Well, I think that's right. Uh, I, I mean, so there is a, a huge, I mean, as John said in his introduction, genetics is different. Every other science that has produced a potentially dangerous outcome, like say nuclear power. No other science apart from genetics have scientists said, okay, we're gonna stop doing this. So even, even when they were building the atomic bomb during the Manhattan Project during the war, there were lots of doubts, especially after the defeat of Nazi, Nazi Germany in 1945. Why are we doing this? What's the point? But they didn't stop work. They wrote a letter uh to the president which mysteriously was never delivered to him <laughs> so they argued but they never stopped work so four times as you said in 1971 in 1974 in 2011 and then most recently in 2019 scientists have said stop working in this area because it's so dangerous so it they have recognized the potential for disaster in their technology but this is relying on their goodwill and on so far we've been very lucky there haven't been any disasters nothing has gone wrong but as Sidney Brenner a leading uh, biologist and a member of the committee that organized the Asilomar meeting in 1975 as he put it when he was giving evidence to the British Parliament he said there's a difference between a, a car accident and an accident in a genetics lab in the road traffic accidents generally aren't self-replicating. If something goes wrong in a genetics lab, it's alive and can potentially get out and escape. I'll just say in passing, there is no evidence that COVID-19 was engineered and that it escaped from a lab that had been, you know, where nefarious things have been happening. It is a spillover event, almost certainly from bats or something, just like we've seen before. Hmm. But there's, I mean, the key point is that this is, you know, this is dangerous, te dangerous technology, and the scientists recognize this, but that's not good enough. Increasingly, they recognize as well that they need to talk to bioethicists, to people who think about this, uh, who are aware of the potential dangers to try and meet those problems before we hit them. Yeah. Because in general, if you think of the history of any technology, railways, for example, or, or you know, uh, civilian air transport, there are very strict rules, but those rules, as they say in the industry, are written in blood because terrible things have happened, accidents, you know, crashes, 
And people say, oh, my God, we could have avoided that if we'd done X, Y, and Z. And so they changed the rules. X, Y, and Z are now become normal. But with genetics, we can't afford for that to happen. We've got to work this out beforehand. And sometimes it might be, well, we shouldn't do this at all because it's not the right thing to do. That last question doesn't often get asked, should we be doing it? It's just, can we? How can we do it? Right. Can you go back through the four times that genetic engineering research, there's been a, like a moral moratorium placed on it, yeah. but maybe start with the most recent. So I'm assuming in 2019, it was after in 2018, the Chinese genet uh, geneticists produced those embryos that would be um, resilient to HIV, was it? A, was there any bioethicist working with that genetic engineer? And and what happened there? What was the the fallout? Yeah, so this was uh, uh, an experiment done by He Jiankui, who's a, uh, a Chinese researcher who dreamed he was going to get the Nobel Prize. I mean, that literally is what he thought he would, would happen. So he was the first person to not only uh, change the DNA of a human embryo, is when it's a single cell. So the point about that is that the, that change will be passed down the generations. So it will be, be in, should be in every cell of the resultant human, and it will also be transmitted to any children they may have. So this is not like, so there are plenty of gene therapies which say treat blood cells to deal with sickle cell disease, for example. But those changes are limited to that particular kind of cell and will, above all, not be passed on to the next generation. But if you manipulate an embryo, then that is every cell should be. So what he wanted to do, what he said he wanted to do was to make, as you indicated, make the uh, result children two children were born we were told at the time now it turns out there was a third so th at least three embryos have been brought to term with these changed genes what he said he wanted to do was to make them resistant to hiv there's a naturally occurring variant in human populations which means that some people can engage in all sorts of risky behavior and still not get hiv so it's a little change uh, on the outside of some cells and he wanted to introduce that change but as somebody asked him when he gave his presentation in 2018, uh, what was the unmet medical need? They're, these children were normal. I can't emphasize that enough. They were normal. There was nothing wrong with them until he got his hands on them. We all know how to avoid getting HIV. It's relatively straightforward. There are you know, very few set of things you have to do and you won't get it. This was not a medically required procedure. The children were normal. And above all, what he did went horribly wrong. So we always use the new technique called CRISPR, which is often described as a, a pair of molecular scissors. We talk about gene editing. So all these metaphors make it sound really kind of safe and nice and kind of, you know, homely. You know, you're just, yeah, I'm editing. That's fine. Whereas in fact, what happened, and we now know this will happen in human embryos. There's been a lot of work done since that shows that this was basically inevitable. It's an accident waiting to happen. The different, the the mutations he wanted to introduce were not introduced. One of the one of the girls has a mutation that has not been seen in anybody else in this particular gene. Uh, we hope it won't make any difference. Not all the cells that re resulted from those embryos are the same. So the girls are what are called mosaic. They've got a mixture of different gene genes in their cells. Again, that can be okay. It can also be problematic, um, and. Above all, we're not sure what happened elsewhere in the genome. We now know that if you try editing human or primate embryos, then you can lose whole chromosomes. Vast bits of your genetic information can just get chewed up by the enzymes that you're putting into the cell. So rather than being like a pair of scissors, it's more like a, a chainsaw run amok. So we don't know what's happened to these girls. We know they were brought to term. They know they are. they were described as healthy, and all we can do is cross our fingers and hope that they are okay. Uh, they are not quite rightly being turned into a circus by the Chinese government, um, but it would be nice to know that they're okay, or if they're not okay, that they're going to receive all the help they will need from the Chinese government, in whose name, in a way, Ho Jong-ki was, was acting. You know, he was trying to 
he was trying to, he got very cross about what he saw as racism with regard to Chinese science and so on. Um, so he was sentenced to, in a secret trial, to three years imprisonment. He's now out of jail. He's been told he's never to work on assisted reproduction again. And there is now a general realisation that this was a very bad thing. And that above all, why would you want to edit human genes? Because even if you say, well, we want to get rid of genetic diseases, in fact, we have ways of doing that at the moment for the vast majority of couples who wish to have, who have a genetic disease in their family and wish to have an unaffected child. And that's by going through IVF and then selecting embryos that are not affected. The number of people, number of couples around the world who could not benefit from that way of doing things, whose genetic condition means that they could only have their desire for an unaffected biological child done through gene editing, are perhaps 200 couples around the world, and that's it. So at, at the end, people have now started saying, well, why are we doing this? Now, the moratorium that was called at the beginning of 2019, very strikingly, did not include everybody. So, for example, the two people who invented CRISPR and won the Nobel Prize for it, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, Charpentier signed the call saying we should stop, we should have a five-year moratorium on human germline editing, so that's heritable editing. Uh, Jennifer Doudna did not. She argued, the you know, the genie's out of the bottle, we need to know what people are doing, this will drive it underground and so on. So, that, it, if you've got money, in the US, for example, if you're in a private institution or you are very wealthy, you can do this. There's no federal right. law to stop this happening in the US. You can't use federal funds to do it because you're not allowed to manipulate state stem cells with federal funds. But you could you can do this. In many other countries, it's illegal. In the EU, in UK, in Australia, and so on. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're speaking with scientist and historian Matthew Cobb. He has written as gods a moral history of the genetic age. Matthew, I agree with you. The general public needs to be involved and informed. The stakes are really high. You can't leave the decisions to the scientists alone. The question I have, though, is are, are we as the public capable of adding value to this? Because we can't even seem to agree on what bathrooms we should use. And then once we agree on something and we give it to the politicians to legislate, I mean, they spend several months trying to figure out and agree on what to name a bridge. I mean, I just don't see a lot of hope in that. And I'm, I'm talking about the United States. I, I know it's, uh, it's, it's, it's tough over there. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. But can the public add value to this? Well, I think they, they can. Um, and partly by simply by understanding, so for example, what I've just said, a lot of people either think, well, we can cure it. This is the way we will get rid of genetic diseases, which clearly, yeah. you know, we like to get rid of, yeah, you know, no problem about that. So it's partly simply being informed and understanding what in fact is going on or in the case of other genetic technology. So for example, this way of perhaps eliminating malaria, transmitting mosquitoes, which is called gene drives, then this technique which, you know, 600,000 people in the world died last year because of malaria. The vast majority of them were children under five. So we've got this enormous pressure of deaths, horrible deaths we could solve. But how, who should decide on whether that should be done? Uh, let's say you say, okay, well, the local population should have a, a veto at least uh, on this. Um, but how do you explain this to a population which is largely non-literate, which doesn't have a word for gene? Now, I'm not making this up. This is actually the situation that is, uh, people are, are currently grappling with in Burkina Faso in Africa, where they're, they're discussing the possibility of carrying out one of these experiments. None of these have ever been released into the wild yet. Um, but that shows you the kind of challenges. But you need to have prior informed consent. And I think in terms of germline editing or fantasies about going and living on Mars and having all your genes edited. I mean, that's that's not going to happen. So it's partly a reality check. Um, if you just wanted to have a blue-eyed baby, for some reason it's always blue eyes. I mean, you know, if, you, people are always worried about, you know, we're all going to turn into Nazis if we do it this way, uh, how to start, you know, designer babies. If you were, abs you were a real Nazi, you really wanted to have blue-eyed baby, 
there are 60 genes involved in eye color 60 to be absolutely wow. certain your baby was going to have blue eyes you would probably have to do six, at least 60 edits so the idea of going and working for a certain person on mars and paying off your your, your, your space ticket that you'd paid going to live there uh, so you can survive on you know in low atmosphere low oxygen and low temperature that's just not going to happen so i think reality check is one of the things that in a way the public then by understanding kind of lowers the pressure or the, the 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 assumption of there's an acceptance that this is the right thing to do i think on a broader scale uh and this is a bit pie in the sky i'll be honest but we need something like the international atomic energy authority which regulates atomic power which is you know incredible but very very dangerous or the international civil aviation Org organization which regulates something which is amazing but very very dangerous and both those are voluntary international umbrella organizations which kind of set the rules for how you can do it safely and can impose sanctions if you get it wrong and we don't have such a thing there is a biological weapons convention and there's the world health organization but neither of those have any kind of power. I mean, you know, we've all seen with the sure. Atomic Energy Authority, if you do something wrong, like in Iran, or like what's happening in uh, in the war between uh, Ukraine and Russia, then they, they have sanctions. They can send in inspectors and so on. We need something like that. Unfortunately, that's probably not going to happen because there's not the same appetite for international regulation as there was when those organizations were set up in the 40s and 50s. Yeah, and it's 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 so much easier with with nuclear to be able to find out if someone has crossed the line or doing something that, that that wasn't agreed to because these are big projects and satellites can pick up certain things. But as you said, there could be these dark labs that nobody knows about, but they're funded by people that have a lot of money and they can do what they want and they can probably do that without being found, I guess. I don't know. But I also think about unintended consequences of of all of these. And, you know, you've got to really think through those sorts of things. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but we've really enjoyed this conversation and we really enjoyed your book. Matthew Cobb has written As Gods, A Moral History of the Genetic Age. Matthew, we hope these uh, conversations and discussions continue. I think you've asked some questions that uh, will get a lot of us thinking. Thank so, you, Matthew. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, it's been great. Thank you very much, both. Again, that was Matthew Cobb, his new book, As Gods. We'll be right back after these words. Stay with us. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak here with John Wells. Well, lack of access to mental health care in rural America equates to increased rates of homelessness, suicides, and opioid overdoses in numbers that often surpass those in urban areas. Wait times for mental health counseling can be up to six months, and we all know that can be far too late when someone is in crisis with a serious mental health issue. Enter our next guest, Dr. Holly Dubois. She is the Chief Medical Officer of MindStrong. It's a virtual behavioral health organization that provides licensed therapists and psychiatrists who specialize in treating hard to reach patients with difficult to treat conditions. Dr. Holly Dubois, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thanks, Lynn. It's a pleasure to be here today. Well, we're happy to have you because we technically live in a rural area. And I know there are some upsides to that, some maybe more um, federal monies that are directed towards us to get better access to these sorts of things. But I think you can probably speak really well to the rural divide. How, how challenged are we? Yeah, you know, it's really unfortunate. And I'll tell you, Lynn, I started in telehealth now over a decade ago in a rural community. So I was living in San Antonio, Texas at the time. And despite San Antonio having quite a wealth of medical care, anything south of San Antonio, which is a large part of Texas geographically and population wise, it's really underserved. And so we started providing telemental health services to a rural hospital actually on the border there. And um, through site visits and my own experience with those patients, I can I can speak very personally 
to that problem. And what MindStrong um, and our work here is really focused on is in serious mental illnesses that are disproportionately located in these rural areas. So you sort of have, unfortunately, all of the potential negative factors coming in together. Yes, yeah, so a decade ago, telehealth started. I think many of us didn't really key into that world until COVID when many people started doing, of course, everything online. And then there was this growing awareness. But can you paint the picture for us of what it looks like to live in a rural town to try to get mental health counseling? Yeah, um, well, you know, unfortunately I can, and, and you're right, COVID was certainly an accelerator, um, but I sort of like to say, yes, we've been doing telemental health long before it was cool and before COVID, because as a psychiatrist, I really felt like it was my duty to bring quality mental health care where it couldn't be reached before. There just aren't enough of us. There will never be enough mental health providers. More than half of the counties in our country do not have a single psychiatrist. So that means that we've really got to extend ourselves and reach into pockets that otherwise would not have access to these services. Um, you know, the wait times, like you mentioned previously, Lynn, to see, you know, it's not appropriate when you have a serious mental illness or an acute psychiatric or mental health need to be told there's a six month wait to see a counselor or psychiatrist. Um, we wouldn't accept that for a heart attack. We wouldn't accept that for serious, un, you know, uh, uh, diabetes, for example, um, but for some reason we've we've accepted it for mental health care, and I'm I'm sort of on a mission to to end that. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are speaking with Dr. Holly Dubois. She's MindStrong's chief medical officer. MindStrong is a virtual behavioral health organization that provides licensed therapists and psychiatrists who specialize in treating hard to reach patients with difficult to treat conditions. Dr. Dubois, in these rural areas, what what is the sweet spot of of mental health problems that 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 people seem to have in these in these rural areas? Well, you know, across the board. So, like I mentioned before, SMI or serious mental illnesses are disproportionately represented in rural communities. And when we talk about a serious or a serious and persistent mental illness. We're really traditionally talking about severe major depression, severe anxiety disorders, bipolar disorders, meaning your mood can change over weeks or days or months at a time, and psychotic disorders, of course, that are less common, but really debilitating, such as schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. Um, where MindStrong has really been able to focus um, is on treating these folks um, with our multidisciplinary approach, meaning we know that best-in-class care has to mean psychiatry and therapy and coaching services to get through those sometimes insurmountable social determinant of health barriers. Um, and so when I guess sweet spot, or at least what we've evolved to really care for virtually um, are all of those serious mental illnesses that are often, you know, kind of frankly neglected by other virtual healthcare solutions. And we certainly all heard about the challenges that people have in finding a therapist and getting help. And these are people that are reaching out and, and, and trying to find ways to alleviate the pain. But what about the people, and I'm, I'm thinking, for some reason, I've been thinking about young men under the age of 30 that uh, are in pain, they don't know what to do, they're not reaching out. How do we get to those people and uh, encourage them and, and, and show them that there's help out there? Yeah, I think about those people too. Um, <laughs> I, I really respect that, John. I have two sons and one daughter and I often worry as my oldest grows, you know, what, what will the world look like um, for him in 15 years when he's 30, for example? Um, and, you know, the way to do that um, is to make it, you know, the, the tech world likes to call it frictionless. I like to call it without stigma, easy, accessible. Um, that's why we really believe in smartphone forward technologies. Um, the Rural Health Association has identified um, acceptability is one of their four key tenets of healthcare um, or healthcare solutions for rural communities. And that means that it might be available, but it might not be the right solution for you, which means we have to personalize care. We have to reach out and 
say to our members or our patients, what are you dealing with? Not inform them, this is what you probably have. Hear back and create a personalized solution. And really that's where the technology I think can come in and, and be the magic. Because we are a science and technology show, I think it's really interesting to find out what it is that MindStrong is doing technologically that is unique in the market. Because I think a lot of us have heard about online, like if you look up online mental health counseling, you know, you, you have a number of companies that do this. So how is MindStrong unique? Yeah, thank you for saying that, Lynn. And you're right, there there are a plethora of solutions now. Amen, wonderful, we welcome it because you know what? There's always going to be a need and we're just gonna keep learning. So by no means do I, do I try to disparage other solutions, but I will say the majority are a marketplace, meaning you come onto our platform, we will find you a therapist. We can even suggest that, you know, we could match you with the right therapist for you. But the continuity of care and the involvement of the platform there forward doesn't always exist. So let me explain what MindStrong's doing a little bit differently. Not only will we match our members with a provider and our wait times are under seven days for therapy, under 10 for psychiatry, it's really sort of unheard of because we've built a really intelligent system and we have to have measurement in mental health care and not the piece of paper that you fill out in the waiting room every time that's the same piece of paper and asks you the same questions. And you think, why am I answering this? Is the doctor going to do anything differently based on these numbers? But really intelligent measurement that we can deliver through the technology. So through our app goes to our members. We have a very, um, I like to call it sleek. Um, I'm proud of our team for building it. It's a measurement driven care system. We survey across mental health problems using a guide that the American Psychiatric Association has actually um, validated and supports because someone can be told that they have major depression by their primary care provider or a family member. And turns out when you ask all the questions in an unbiased patient friendly way, you may get a different answer. And from then, our platform then takes that screening tool and delivers very focused surveys, which then allows the members to communicate back to us, these are the exact problems I have and what I wanna work on. And then they may get personalized content to support that. And then our app is actually capturing their activity digitally. Um, that's our proprietary technology. And, and that's where I think, um, you know, using our digital footprint for good, this is a real opportunity here. So it's it's both on the active measurement side, on the passive data side, it's it's complex. And, and the, our data science team, I always tell them they're way smarter than I am, and I'm really lucky to work with them. Um, and that's where I think really our technology is, is, is unique. So when you say that you can capture someone's activity digitally, what exactly, what are you referring to? Yeah, and MindStrong's rooted in a belief that a, we're all leaving a digital footprint, right? And that, of course, the way that we use our phone, maybe the way we type on it, maybe how much we use it, there are a whole lot of factors where we are will inform, I mean, where we are geographically, will inform our mental health. The only way to really get to the bottom of that, and that'll be you know, what we say is the holy grail of virtual mental health care, is to let our patients also tell us, is that true? So we may see a signal and that's a beautiful technological feat. It doesn't mean anything unless the patient validates it with their own reported outcome and our clinicians use it. And that's what we're using and iterating upon every day in care. And I think it's, you know, it's tremendously engaging for somebody to believe that their health provider is committed to them on that level. We see people completing our surveys and engaging with our platform up to 85% of the time, month over month, which that's pretty unusual for a virtual solution. So especially in our rural communities, we're, we're quite proud of that. And Dr. Dubois, uh, when, when, when people are, are using your service, are they always speaking to a person or are there bots involved as well? Great question, John, I appreciate that. There will always be a provider. Of course, we, if you would like to access personalized content, our platform may suggest to you, hey, looks like your anxiety is ticking up. Maybe watching this video might be helpful. 
and schedule an appointment with your therapist. Mm -hmm. um, there's not a substitution. And that's not just me being biased as this is what I do every day. I truly believe that we can use the technology and we can extend ourselves, but we must always be present as providers too. Because when Lynn was talking about the various solutions out there, there, there are a number of apps that are just bot-based and and we're not anti-technology, but we're also very sensitive to the fact that, that somebody that is in pain and in trouble, uh, that the bots may not be the best approach. Yeah, and that's really the, you know, and for me, when I hear of um, opportunities out there for you know, mild or, or acute time-limited mental illnesses, for example, those digital solutions, there is definitely a time and a place, but you don't really know. And especially when you're talking about those young people, John, you know, that's frankly, for me, that's when things are scary, right? Because we, they, they just haven't frankly been alive long enough. We don't know what their illness is going to look like. So we need to provide the full range of acuity services for them and a safety net um, urgent support, MindStrong's 24-7 urgent support, because we know that that's, you know, mental health crisis, crises happen outside of office visits. Mm -hmm. Holly, as, as we've been having this conversation, it's been dawning on me something that, you know, we often talk about bias in AI and how, how it is designed. And then certainly you already mentioned some sort of bias um, if you're seeing your a family care physician or something and are getting a diagnosis. And it seems as though a perfect solution is almost removing the bias and yet also capturing, like you say, in these activities. And I'm wondering, do you sort of um, relinquish your, all, your digital footprint to MindStrong so that if I am someone who suffers from deep depression and anxiety, MindStrong can chart, you know, even maybe the the things that I am searching online or the movies I'm watching, or is it that sort of thing to see like, oh, this is, this person is not going down a good path. Okay. That's a great question, Lynn, and thank you for asking it. First of all, and I want to say any element of data sharing is always at the member or the patient's discretion. So we never would access anything without their permission and content is not one of those. So may, maybe if you were using your phone in the middle of night, but not what you were searching, not any data or content, absolutely not. No. However, you know, there's some really exciting early work that, um, that we're seeing. And again, this is only for those clinicians and members who opt in of what does your phone use tell us about your depression when your phone use becomes out of sync with your previous pattern and then you're giving us these reports back and we see your depression numbers objectively rise you talk about eliminating bias and mental health clinicians are the best at I mean, you know, we're all guilty of this, right? And that's why we have to have objectivity. We have to have scores and numbers and things, you know, we have to have a vital sign equivalent, right? Um, a cardiologist doesn't just guess, um, listens to the heart and takes a blood pressure. So um, no, there's there's elements of the footprint, Lynn, but always, always, always with members' privacy first and foremost. And second, these are emerging emerging technologies. And, and we really believe there won't be one answer. It'll be a combination of all of these that'll inform us the best moving forward. Yeah, as you say, multidisciplinary um, approach is so important. It would seem to me, well, first of all, I wanted to mention, I know that with um, severe depression and even bipolar, one of the triggers of especially bipolar is sleep deprivation. So yeah, if you see a lot of phone use in the middle of the night, that's that's cluing you into that sleep deprivation and showing that it could be a lot more acute. Psychiatry seems like it would be much more difficult to do with telehealth versus you know regular therapy. Is Is that true and what are the challenges there? Meaning psychiatry specifically managing medications versus versus only counseling. Yes, it would seem to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, I, I of all of the tele, you know, of all, you know, there was a lot of physical medicine being conducted during the pandemic virtually. The tools and technologies have advanced tremendously. And for psychiatry, really, I'd say, you know, 
all we need is our voice. We do need, you know, vital signs on occasion. We need labs. We need to do physical exams, but those are less commonly necessary. And certainly um, when you're talking about any access versus none, you know, you have to provide the access. And so we really, what I find, and I've been seeing members with uh, MindStrong for years, and like I said, started in telepsychiatry over a decade ago, especially when people have access in their home, they're actually much more at ease. Um, you really get a window into their life, to their circumstances, um, and they don't have, you know, it's very stressful for many folks with a serious mental illness to even get to that appointment, right? Um, and to endure the waiting room and then to go into the office and, and all of that. And also, you know, now with the barriers of electronic record systems, which we must have, but having that conversation in the room is limited for any provider now because we have so much data that we have to record. So when I can do that seamlessly and the data is coming to me through the platform and I can maintain eye contact with my patients or members, um, I actually find it to be um, to be easier. Um, but maybe that's one of my biases. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're speaking with Dr. Holly Dubois. She is in Chicago, MindStrong, Mind Chief Medical Officer. MindStrong is a company that provides virtual read telehealth. Behavioral health organization provides licensed therapists and psychiatrists. Holly, I wanted to ask you, the suicide prevention line, I think, is is it no, is no longer there. And there's something called the 988 crisis line. Has that taken over for the suicide prevention line? And, and what is 988? Yeah, um, John, great question. And um, 988 is a national endeavor um, to provide focused, equivalent to 911 for physical health or other emergencies. 988 is a dedicated mental health emergency line. Um, I will say at MindStrong internally, of course, we will refer to local authorities when and if there's an emergency, but we also provide 24-7 support via our platform. And what we found is about a third of the time, um, you know, it's a true emergency. Another two-thirds of the time, there are things that we can address even on an urgent basis to alleviate crisis. And so we've seen this translate to folks needing to visit emergency rooms and hospitals less often when they're involved. Um, but the issue of suicide specifically is one really, um, of course, central to any any endeavor in serious mental illness and mental health. And um, I, I hope that I hope that we can talk about MindStrong's uh, work with the VA and our recent um, election as a finalist in the Mission Daybreak grant, because that's specifically designed to prevent veteran suicide. Yeah, that was my next question, actually. You were just awarded this grant by the Veterans uh, Veteran Affairs for their work to improve mental health outcomes for their veterans. Um, so what will this allow you to do for uh, veterans? Yeah, thanks, John. We're incredibly proud. And our team actually traveled to Washington just last, just a few days ago to compete in the final, um, they called it Demo Day, where they were able to share specifically what we learned since being awarded a finalist and then to the to the end um, over the last eight weeks. And what we've learned is that veterans have some very specific issues and concerns. And you talk about rural health, veterans are disproportionately located in rural areas and suffer some really specific challenges with regard to substance use, of course, trauma, sleeplessness. So what we did was expand our care plans and our approach already to include those two variables to really address veteran suicide. We have some relationships already developing with some rural health clinics and veteran associations, hopefully. And we really would um, we would consider it an honor uh, to care for these veterans through um, being awarded this grant. We think we have the solution for them and, and we're just sort of really eager to finally reach them with it. Holly, I wanted to talk about the destigmatization of mental health issues. I feel like in our little rural community, um, and it's funny to even say Park City's rural because it doesn't feel like it. However, our hospital often gets grants and things like that being a rural hospital. So we'll go with that. But I feel like so much work has been done in this community to destigmatize any sort of mental uh, health issues. And therefore, it might be easier for people to approach a physical location, but just going back to that, I'd love to to hear your take if you have measurement on 
you know, it's probably part of your questioning in the app is, is, you know, have you gone to a physical place and why or why not would you be, be more likely to sit in your living room and talk to a, a therapist? Yeah, it's a great question. So all of a majority of our members come to us having already been in the hospital or emergency room with a serious mental illness. So these are folks who've already accessed brick and mortar care. And then even those in rural communities, I think I alluded to previously, we've had members for three years on our platform engaging in care regularly month over month. Um, I think that there will never be enough work to do on the stigma of mental health. Um, I think that as we learn together, um, especially, you know, going back to our young folks, our veterans, there are a lot of barriers and how it affects your ability to work. Um, again, we're talking about, you know, what's recorded, what's not, what labels there are. Um, I think that, I think people really um, are embracing this level of care because it can, it can be, it's accessible to them in their phone, right? In a way that I think having that care be seamless and oftentimes in the privacy of their home is just really critical. Absolutely. Okay, if someone's listening now and wants to know how to get started, what what are the steps? Oh, thanks for asking, Lynn. I appreciate that. App Store, Google Play Store, download MindStrong, connect with a provider within a week. It's that easy. We're available to almost every commercial plan now. We're um, live and operating in 13 states. And um, we're really we're really excited for next year and, and, and what we have ahead. Dr. Holly Dubois, the Chief Medical Officer of MindStrong, we are so pleased to speak with you. I think it's so important. And I actually love that we're talking about this topic on a science show because it is all about the technology and it is, you know, it helps us all sort of catch up and know what's out there and what technology enables us to do. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Lynn. And I'm really, um, I like to say this is the next frontier, you know, just being able to use audiovisual um, means to reach my patients a decade ago, we were using some really clunky out of date equipment that now we'd all laugh at. And so now to see how we're integrated into an application, how we're reaching people across the country, um, you know, it's, it's really, um, really quite gratifying and, and exciting. Thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio. Thank you. And that was Holly Dubois, the Chief Medical Officer for MindStrong. Thanks for tuning in to Cool Science Radio here on KBCW Park City. Thanks to our underwriters, IT Innovated, Peak Murray Real Estate, San Francisco Design, and Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Utah Properties. Stay tuned now for National Public Radio News from Washington. Thank you.